Gracious Father in heaven, we thank thee, Lord, for this opportunity to come into thy house and worship thee and praise thee and glorify thy name. As we open your word, Lord, we pray that it enters our hearts and that we may apply this to our everyday lives. We pray, Lord, that thou will be with Pastor Bob and give him the words to say so that we can understand more clearly. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we'll look at three things this morning. First of all, the requirements for the priests. Secondly, the requirements for the sacrifices. Thirdly, the requirements for today. What we have read are the laws of God for the people of Israel. They were the laws for the priesthood. And they're the laws for the high priest. That's this particular section. God instructed Moses, let all the people of Israel hear this. This is for everyone to know, but the laws themselves that we find here in these chapters were specifically for the priest and for the high priest. There are laws regarding death. What what happens if a priest has a close relative die? What happens if the high priest? What what are the rules of mourning? How, How may they display this? To what limits are they called? But above it all, you see, stands the fact that God wants these priests to continue their work. For they are priests to the Lord. And they are working on behalf of the people. And therefore, there's a lot of limitations that are given. There are a lot of circumstances where they are not allowed to mourn and grieve. And only in a very few selective cases. May it occur. There are laws that we are given here regarding their marriages. Laws that, that some of which may have applied to the, to the people in general. But most of those laws about marriage that we find in that 21st chapter are specific to the priest. God is separating them out and saying, you have have not only the general laws that I have given, you have specific laws as well. And so there's laws about who they can and cannot marry that are repeated again as well and emphasized for the high priest. There are rules about physical defects. Who actually can minister before the Lord? The chapter probably in our modern day makes us a little bit uncomfortable with the use of terms and circumstances and situations and defects as it speaks about. But yet God was illustrating something to his people. He was illustrating to them that these priests were holy. And part of holiness is wholeness, a completeness. And therefore he is illustrating that. But yet God in his grace, you'll note, as you go back and perhaps reread the chapter, says even if one is born in those circumstances, they still get to eat the food. They still, get to, they still are provided for. They are still cared for. They cannot serve me. They cannot go into the sanctuary because for them to go into the tabernacle, the sanctuary, would be to profane my name. They are to be Holy people, remember they have the anointing oil upon them. They have been set apart. There are rules about uncleanness that are given. 
that a priest that follows a different set of rules in terms of that uncleanness and what they can and cannot do in regards to their priesthood as long as they are unclean. We might say, what's the purpose of God in this? Well, one, God is separating out three classes of people within the nation of Israel. There are the general population of Israelites. There are priests. But then there is the high priest. And those three correspond to the tabernacle itself. The general population was allowed to enter into the courtyard of the tabernacle to bring their sacrifices, to bring their offerings. They were allowed to come and to present them. They could enter in. There were rules. They they were to be a holy people. God gave them a multitude of rules that they are to follow. But you can step in only if you meet those rules. But the priest had the privilege not only of stepping into the courtyard, the priest got to step into the tabernacle, into that first room, that enclosure that we call the holy place. But you see, God is saying to enter into that, there's an increase in terms of holiness that you have to follow. You you may enter into the courtyard but with certain requirements, but you can't enter in to the holy place. Even though you're a priest, even though you're part of the family of Aaron, you, there are still restrictions. Why? Because I am holy. That's why they couldn't even enter into the courtyard without following those laws of holiness. That's why the priests can't enter into the holy place without following not only those laws for the courtyard, but now the laws for the tabernacle entrance. But then God says, and here's this one guy, this high priest, the man who gets to enter into the most holy place, or the holy of holies, the place where the, the, the Ark of the Covenant is, the place where my presence is, that person... That person who enters there, not just general courtyard rules, not just general holy place rules, that man has to follow even more stringent requirements if he is to enter into my very presence. See, God is teaching a lesson on holiness. How many times did we not read in these chapters? Do not profane my name. I am holy. I'm the God who sanctified. This is a lesson on holiness and what it is that God requires. Not only from the people, but now specifically. What does God require from his priest? What does God require from the high priest? It's a reminder That to enter into the presence of God is an awesome thing. But one can only do so if one is holy. To enter in otherwise 
makes you a Nadab and a Bihu, the two sons of Aaron back in Leviticus chapter 11. But God burns with fire. It's a reminder, we cannot enter the presence of God without holiness. Secondly, the chapters, the, the chapter 22, deals with the requirements for sacrifices. What are the laws that God gives? Well, basically, God is giving laws that said, if you're going to present an animal for a sacrifice for your sin, or a sacrifice as part of your thanksgiving, then here are the rules, generally speaking. That animal cannot have any blemishes. That animal cannot have any defects. There can be nothing about that animal that one would look at and say, that's second rate. I was talking to a, a gentleman uh, Friday at Presbytery who, who used to be a, an, an animal husbandry judge. He, he's the guy you have to go to to get your animal registered correctly. Okay, whether, whether, and, and he was dealing with the, the farming industry to, to get it registered correctly. And, and he would have to inspect animals. And it, and it came to a point in time, he said, after I had done this a number of years, I, 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 wouldn't have, I could just tell by the way they came to me whether or not this animal was going to meet the requirements. And it's interesting because what's going on in chapter 22 is there are actually two criteria. One, the person as an individual. If I'm the person who is bringing the sacrifice... I have to stop and look at my animal. I have to look at my bull. I have to look at the sheep. I have to look at the goat that I'm presenting. And, and I have to make an evaluation. Is this animal without blemish? I have to inspect it. Does it meet the rules and requirements of no blemishes? Does it meet the rules and requirements of no defect? But then when I bring it, there's a second inspection. And that's the inspection the priests have to do now. They now look it over. Because I might be, yeah, it's good enough for me. Okay, it meets my requirement. Yeah, yeah, get a little blemish. If I comb the, the wool just right, nobody's going to see that, right? But now there becomes the second standard. Now it comes to the priest. Now the responsibility falls upon the priest. Does this animal meet inspection? Does it pass the test? And only if it does can that animal be brought in, slaughtered, put upon the altar as atonement. Only then. What is God teaching? What's God's purpose in this? Sin cannot atone for sin. Something imperfect cannot be offered for imperfection. A blemished creature cannot be offered on the altar for the purpose of taking away blemishes 
defects, sin. It has to be a perfect sacrifice offered by a holy priest. That's the only way. It was a stark reminder to an Israelite that I cannot pay for my sin. I can't do it. I'm bringing this offering because I'm imperfect. I'm, how can I pay for my own sin as an imperfect creature? Any sin, any blemish that I might have as I would present myself and that which I have done for my salvation only points out even all the more that I am an imperfect sacrifice for my own sin. See, it was teaching them. And it was teaching them to look beyond. To look beyond this animal. To look beyond these priests. Because they all knew their priests were imperfect. They all knew their priests sinned. But God gave them this picture, this foreshadowing, that they might know that there would someday come a perfect sacrifice and a perfect priest who would come to take away sin. That's why we have Leviticus 21 and 22. It's not so that we go back and reduplicate that which is here. Oh, this is what we have to do? No, because this was a picture, a foreshadowing of that which was to come. So let's look thirdly then at the requirements for today. And the first thing is, God doesn't change. God hasn't lessened. The standard of holiness that is being set here in Leviticus 21 and 22 hasn't changed. It's not like God now goes, you know, I was really harsh. I was really hard on people in the Old Testament. I think I've got to come up with a new plan. Yeah, A is no longer 100. A is now 94 to 100. I'll, I'll let that go. As long as you get a 94, you got an A. I'll let some blemishes go by. I'll let some imperfections go by. Malachi 3.6, I, Jehovah, change not. That's why I have so often in this series, especially as we got into this holiness where God calls his people, and we see it in these passages here as well, called to holiness, you are to be holy. Yeah, but that's Old Testament. No, we read in Peter, you are to be holy. And that standard hasn't changed. 
We hear that oftentimes. You know, there, there was an Old Testament God, Jehovah. He was mean. He was harsh. He was judgmental. But this New Testament God, Jesus, he's much more loving and kind and gracious than the Old Testament one. As if somehow God of the Old Testament stopped living, stopped existing, and that Jesus wasn't existing in the Old Testament. Oh, this is such confused theology. But if one reads the word, one understands. The standard hasn't changed. God is not more lenient. God is the same. The same expectation from you and I to live holy lives. It's a startling reality for some. Especially if we've gotten used to the fact that we think grace is a license to sin. Oh, I'm saved. I can do whatever I want now. No. I, Jehovah, change not. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He hasn't changed. God provided for these people in the Old Testament, these people of Israel. He provided holiness. A picture of holiness. In a sacrificial animal and in a holy priest. The whole thing is about God's recognizing that the people of Israel are sinful. What do we do about it? Well, for now, this is what I want you to do. Because for now, this is but a picture, a foreshadowing of what is to come. But now God has provided the reality. He has given to us the perfect priest. A priest after the order, as we read in Genesis, of Melchizedek. Did you ever notice that the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, starts in the temple? The whole story of the coming of Jesus starts in the temple. Why? Because Luke is about to tell us of the perfect priest. The perfect priest. One who meets absolutely every standard of holiness there is. And the New Testament over and over and over confirms this. Just keep your finger here if you want and go to the book of Hebrews chapter 7. Book of Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 15. Notice the, the, the whole thing is, is about Christ being the priest. And then he says, verse 15. 
This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is written of him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Go down to verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifice daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men. What's it talking about? It's talking about Leviticus chapters 21 and 22. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. That high priest, that perfect high priest represented here in Leviticus 22. Meet these standards. Meet these standards of holiness so you can enter into my presence is met by Jesus Christ who becomes the priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted in the heavens. There is but one Holy high priest. It wasn't Aaron. It wasn't any one of his descendants. The only holy, perfect, innocent high priest is Jesus Christ. Like us in every way, scripture says, except for sin. No blemish, no defect. No spot, no remnant of any sort of sin. God has provided the perfect high priest. But he's also provided for us the perfect sacrifice. Go back to Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 14 and 15. Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize us with our weakness, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sin. And just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. 
so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest. But he was appointed by him who says, you are my son, today have I begotten you. And then the quote, you are a priest forever again after the order of Melchizedek. But what does he do? He offers himself up. Verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He himself becomes the sacrifice. What's the point of Leviticus 21 and 22? To drive us to Christ. To look not for a substitute, but to look to Christ alone. How much more perfect can atonement be than if the priest and the sacrifice are both perfect? And both are. What was God's purpose? Why is Christ? Why the perfect priest? Why the perfect sacrifice? So that we can be holy. That we can be holy. Not through me, not through I, but through Christ in me. All the righteousness we have, all the righteousness that we are, all the holiness that we are, Is from Christ. I don't have holiness in and of myself. It is the Lord who sanctifies. See what the call continually is through this book of Le Leviticus is be holy. It's not make yourself holy. Not become holy. Just be holy. Just be who you are. Be my people redeemed. And what is the call of God to you and I? Be holy. Not make yourself holy. You can't do it. Only the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice can. Be holy. In other words, be who you are. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. That's who we are. We're not trying to become holy. We are holy because of what Christ has done. And if I am holy in Christ, what does that mean? It means I ought to live a holy life. I ought to live for his glory. I ought to live for his praise. It is Christ who has come and by his death rent that veil. It is Christ who has come and has destroyed the temple. So that we might be in the presence of God. Not in an outer court. Not in an outer gate. Not in just a holy of holies. But that we might be in the very presence of God. 
because that's what Christ has done. Has he done it for you? There's no hope of salvation. There's no hope of eternity. There's no hope of glory. Unless Christ, the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice, has done that work for you. When the people of Israel on the day of Pentecost asked, what shall we do? Repent. And believe. But if you are, if you are one of those who has Jesus Christ as your righteousness, rejoice and be glad. There is no greater thing than the work of Christ. Father, thank you. May we seek to live lives 